which is the podcast covering issues in theology, philosophy, biblical studies, political studies, social issues, and anything else that happens to take my fancy at the time. I am your host, Glenn Peoples. Well, I know that some of you are still waiting for the next installment in the series called In Search of the Soul, where I talk about philosophy of mind and its theological implications. I am working on it. I have been unfortunately pressed for time and will be for some time, but it is on the way. This is yet another consolation prize. Recall, although you might not recall, back in episode three of this podcast, back when it was just a baby, I did a podcast episode on on what was it on political philosophy, actually, on the place of religious convictions in public and political life, where I looked at the question of justification. You may also recall that my last podcast episode was a public lecture that I gave on abortion at the University of Canterbury. Well, while I was there during that same week, I gave another lecture, uh, this time on political philosophy and religious convictions in public life, that was based on the same paper that episode three was based on. So it's very similar, but it was developed more for an interactive uh, format. The, The title of the talk was Religion in the Public Square, Is It Justified? And so that is the consolation prize that I'm offering to you now as episode 30. I hope you find it interesting as you wait with bated breath for the promised episode to come. I think it's interesting anyway, and I hope you do. So without further ado, here it is. Religion in the public square, is it justified? Thank you, Sarja. Thank you for inviting me as well. I appreciate the opportunity, and I'm grateful that we've had as many as we have coming out here. I know it's not the most interesting of subjects to a lot of people, but I think it's an important one. Uh, I did my own PhD research in the field of religion in the public square, but tonight I'm going to talk about just a very specific area of that research, which I found particularly interesting, and I hope you will too. And that's the question of, is it justified to bring our religious convictions into the public square? And if it is, what does that mean? I'm going to introduce some terminology here. I'm going to be using the word prohibitionism quite a lot, because if I didn't, I'd be using a very long phrase quite a lot. And it's better to use one word than than, than many. I use the word prohibitionism to refer to the following claim, and you'll see it up on the screen there. Nobody should advocate a public policy if her reasons for doing so are religious, or if the policy is one that requires religious justification. Now, I call it prohibitionism because, A, Well, I think it's wrong, and by using the word prohibitionism, which is quite a a negative word with some very bad associations, I might sort of poison the well in my favor a little bit, and people might give me some emotional sympathy. But more importantly, I use it because it is a restrictive outlook. It's, It's a view that says we want to prohibit you morally, at least, not legally, but we think it's morally prohibited to do this, to bring your religious convictions into the public world in this way. So I'm going to call that prohibitionism. It's 
if you do much reading on political philosophy and the issue of religion in the public square, you'll find that what I call prohibitionism is recognizable as a doctrine advanced by a large number of thinkers in what we have come to call the liberal democratic tradition. It's the tradition into which New Zealand fits. We are a liberal democracy. And so if you do, you'll come across names like John Rawls, Robert Audi, uh, Gerald Gauss, and a number of others. I think this view, prohibitionism, is wrong, completely wrong. But my task tonight is not to persuade you that it is wrong. I'm going to talk about just a very specific type of argument that gets used for prohibitionism, and it has to do with whether or not the kind of beliefs and policies that we're talking about are justified. I'm going to try and persuade you that this argument for prohibitionism is either just flat out wrong, which I think it is, or if the argument is improved, then religious beliefs become acceptable after all. So, some liberal writers, and some that I'm going to be talking about tonight, have realized this, have realized that their position needs to be improved, and they've realized that it actually, when you improve it, it ends up making religious beliefs acceptable after all, and so they've just simply changed their position, changed the rules, because you realize in the end what they're advocating is not really a set of principles that have to do with what they think is right and wrong, it's just a way of reaching the desired goal, which is keeping religion out of the public square. So let's get started. When I talk about liberal, not religious, liberal justification, what am I talking about? Well, in political liberalism, which, as I've said, is the kind of society that we have, a liberal democracy, one important reason, maybe even the most important reason, depending on which author you happen to be reading at the time, that religious beliefs are shunned from our political and social reasoning process is that we should support only policies that can be justified to our fellow citizen. And if we're only supporting a policy for religious reasons, the theory goes, well then it couldn't possibly be justified in the right way. So what does it mean to be justified then? Well, perhaps the father of the modern view on liberal justification is a 20th century political philosopher named John Rawls. Welcome. <laughs> You'll pick it up. I haven't said much. Now, John Rawls is perhaps the most important 20th century figure in liberal political philosophy. And this is his view on what it means for an idea or a policy to be justified. He says, our exercise of political power is proper and hence justifiable only when it is exercised in accordance with a constitution, the essentials of which all citizens may be reasonably expected to endorse in the light of principles and ideals acceptable to them as reasonable and rational. The ideal of citizenship imposes a moral, not a legal, duty, the duty of civility to be able to explain to one another on those fundamental questions how the principles and policies they advocate and vote for can be supported by the political values of public reason. He has the gift of saying things in a rather long way. But the essential idea here is that you should only advocate policies which all citizens may be reasonably expected to endorse in the light of principles and ideals acceptable to them. So that's the idea of justification. 
I think there's a, actually a lot of good in this. I don't agree with it, but I think there's a lot of good in it. I think we should care very much about what our fellow citizens think. I think that we should care that those people that we want to see living under our laws and our principles that we think are good ones can appreciate why they are good ones. I, I, you know, I work, don't boo me yet, but I work for the Inland Revenue Department and every now and then I'm on the phones talking to a customer. Now I'm not saying I necessarily agree with all the policies that Inland Revenue enforces, but when you're in a situation like that and you're having to explain to someone why they've got to pay the amount of tax they do and why do I have to use a secondary tax code and so forth, I think there is great virtue in actually having them walk away from the conversation, having had it explained to them rather than just, no, I just don't understand it, they're being mean to me and there's no reason for them to do this to me. I think there's clear value in explaining to people why we impose upon them the rules that we do so that it makes sense to them. That's, I think, a big part of being fair. So you've explained it to them in a way that they can understand, using reasons why they have to do something, and now they see that you're not being arbitrary, you have justified yourself. I think the problem that John Rawls was answering was a basic one, and it's one that we all have to address, and that is pluralism. A pluralistic society obviously cannot please everyone without treading on the toes of at least some other people. So in order to avoid treading on too many toes, well, what we do is we, according to liberalism, we suggest these principles of restraint in the public square. You just make fewer demands on people. And the liberal answer that John Rawls offered is not to try to persuade people by reason to adopt our beliefs, because that arrogantly assumes that there is this right and wrong that everyone should accept, and we have these beliefs that are correct, and they have these beliefs that are wrong. In a liberal mindset, that's a very arrogant thing to do, you see. So what you must do is just propose fewer policies, namely only those on which everyone can agree uh, in light of beliefs that they already hold. So they don't have to accept your beliefs, they can just accept the policies that they already would accept based on their beliefs. So this idea of justification has become absolutely central. If you do any reading on, on liberal political philosophy, they all appeal to this idea of justification. Uh, it may be improved on, but it can never be rejected, otherwise you've just thrown away liberal political philosophy altogether. But it does need to be improved on, and here's why. Boiled down to its most basic demand, here is what John Rawls told the world. Don't propose any coercive public policy unless it's supported by the reasonably held principles and beliefs of everybody else. Now, when I say coercive, I just use that word because public policy coerces people. It becomes law and they just have to live with it whether they like it or not. So if you do this, you can avoid imposing your beliefs on everyone and show respect for everyone. Now, the, the phrase that sometimes gets used is an overlapping consensus. So we don't agree on lots of things, but on some things we all overlap on the same things that we do agree on. That's an overlapping consensus, and that's where we should build our public policies. Now, when it comes to religion in the public square, we have to face this fact. Not everyone shares your religious beliefs, obviously. Since not everyone shares your religious beliefs that motivate you to support or oppose particular policies, like the sanctity of life or marriage or what have you, or a big one in my world anyway, is education. Obviously not everyone agrees on that. Uh, principles that tell us what role the state should play in private lives and so forth. 
You don't impose policies on other people that you advocate because of those beliefs. Now, this model of justification, according to some philosophers, has been called closed justification because the range of factors that can make your favoured policy justified is closed off to what other people already accept. It's not open to, out, to other things that you can then draw in. You're limited by what everyone else already thinks. Simple, right? Sounds simple initially. I don't think it is. If we adopt this policy, what should the law say about abortion? Well, personally, I think that abortion in general is an unjustifiable destruction of human life. The law, as far as I'm concerned, should not treat the unborn as inconsequential. Now, no one, surely, if we adopt this liberal stance on justification, surely no one can demand a policy on abortion that violates beliefs and commitments that I hold, because what we need is overlapping consensus, don't we? This is what you know, liberal political theorists will tell us. Well, it's what John Rawls told us. But, okay, let's set aside the abortion issue then. No, in fact, let's not. Let's imagine that I'm pro-abortion rights. I'm not, but let's imagine that I am. Can you pro-lifers out there in the world appeal to a policy that I can accept on abortion given the values and beliefs that I already hold? Of course you can't. What now then? Is there a liberal way forward? Well, there isn't. And John Rawls was forced to admit it. Here's his solution. Up until now, he's been saying this is the way that every policy should be justified, and if it can't be justified this way, then it can't be justified at all. Until it came to abortion, then he realized that he was in trouble because it couldn't be justified at all. You know, whichever position you hold, you can't use this method. So he says, all we need to do is just override the seriously held convictions of other people if we've got the numbers on our side. Vote. He said, and I quote, disputed questions, such as that of abortion, may lead to a standoff between different political conceptions and citizens must simply vote on the question. The outcome of the vote is to be seen as reasonable, provided all citizens of a reasonably just constitutional regime sincerely vote in accordance with the idea of public reason. Well, wait a minute, the idea of public reason was that you justify yourself to other people, not that you simply vote and whoever's got the, you know, the largest number of ticks on their side wins. And because I think that liberal justification can't solve the issue of abortion, I think it fails. He conceded no less than that if you can't really resolve a dispute over deeply held moral convictions, forget justification, just vote, and those with the greater numbers win. In other words, over some pretty important moral issues where potentially human lives are at stake, no policy meets his liberal democratic standard of justification. Here, I think, is exactly what is wrong with Rawls's theory. It makes you subject to the will of people with arguments that you think are just hopeless, misguided, or otherwise wrong. All it takes is a few people out there to disagree with you, and no matter how good your arguments for your policy are, and no matter how bad you think their objections are, as long as they have reflected on what they already believe, and they have seen that their current beliefs do not allow them to accept your policy, then you have to keep your policy to yourself. Given this view of justification, you can only endorse a policy if it is such that it can be endorsed by others in light of the beliefs and goals held by Focus on the Family, the KKK, the Catholic Church, and the Humanist Rationalist Society. I don't think that's a promising outlook. I can't see much hope of success there. 
Just think for a minute about the kind of things that this approach to justification implies. What about same-sex marriage? Which way should the law go? Should we use trade tariffs? Should income be taxed or should only profit be taxed? Should charitable organisations like churches be tax-exempt? Should churches be treated like charities? Should manufacturers and producers be required to regulate their businesses uh, to take account of public concern over global warming? Is there any end to the kind of questions like this that we could come up with? In fact, there isn't. Is there a total consensus of reasonable people on any of these issues? No, there is not. And that fact is not even controversial. I think it's just obvious. In fact, in an ironic twist, if you adopt Rawls's version of liberal justification, it might even mean that if I live in a society where there are some people who don't accept any policies that might be typically associated with political liberalism, then I have a duty not to pursue any policies associated with political liberalism. So if liberalism is right, we shouldn't pursue it. Now, an improvement was called for. And to be fair to the political liberals, they realised this. They said, hang on a minute, we've got a problem here. We've got to do something about this. The solution that a philosopher called Gerald Gauss offered was called open justification. And I'll describe that in just a moment. But here's why he offered it. He offered it because he said something obvious. Little, if anything, he says, is the object of consensus among reasonable people. So people just don't agree. <laughs> well, <laughs> you need a PhD to figure that out. <laughs> the solution that Gauss offers is what I'm going to call open justification. It's much better. I think it's much better. For the sake of contrast, I want you to remember what I said about John Rawls's view of justification, a view that we're going to call closed justification. So a person is closedly justified in holding a belief or adopting a policy if the beliefs that the person already holds give him good reasons to accept this new belief or policy. But, here comes the obvious thing. What if, Gerald Gauss asks, what if you're actually just a bit ignorant? And if you knew or understood just a little bit more, you would have beliefs that gave you good reasons for accepting this new belief or policy. I want to consider a hypothetical person. He's not real. His name is Alf and he lives in Porirua. Alf might hold to all kinds of prejudices and false beliefs that would lead him to reject a policy. And yet, says Gerald Gauss, we might still be justified in advocating that this policy be imposed upon him. Because if Alf were a bit more reasonable and open to considering new information, then he would have a reason to endorse it. So stated differently, a person can be openly justified in accepting my policy, but they can still reject that policy because they don't realize that they're openly justified. They don't realize that only if they, they knew a little bit more and understood the situation a little bit better or they were a little bit more open-minded, then they would have reasons to accept the policy. I think, here's Gerald Gauss, I think it's a much better prospect. And here's how it goes. Open justification asks the question, are there considerations of which Alf could be made aware that are grounded in his system of beliefs and if integrated, and bear in mind, philosophers have a gift for saying things in a way that takes much longer than they ought to, 
are there considerations of which Alf could be made aware that are grounded in his system of beliefs, and if integrated, would they undermine the justification of, and there's a letter beta which represents this policy, given his revised system of beliefs? Put it somewhat more elegantly, if Alf's beliefs were subject to extensive criticism and additional information, does his viewpoint commit him to revise his beliefs? So, open justification still asks you to justify your policy to people in a way that they can, in theory, appreciate. You can't just impose horrendous policies on, say, racial minorities and tell them, well, your beliefs are crazy or you guys are worthless, so I don't really owe you an explanation. You can't do that. What you have to say to yourself is, now, I want to impose this policy on these people. I want them to accept it. I want this society in which they live to accept it. Can I appeal to beliefs that my fellow citizens already hold, especially their beliefs about what count as good evidence for new ideas in such a way that they ought to be able to see and they could, in principle, come to a place where they could see, given what they already know, that there really are good reasons to, to support this policy. In other words, can I convince them? That's the way of putting it in English. So what open justification does is then it, it idealizes away from the beliefs that your fellow citizen currently does hold, because those beliefs could just be the result of ignorance or, or bigotry or, or who knows what. They could be the result of all kinds of negative things. And it idealizes towards the beliefs that they would hold if they were better informed, more reasonable, and more willing to be critical about their existing beliefs and so forth. Notice something very important, and this is extremely important, so please take note of this. You might have provided open justification for a policy that you want to support, even when your fellow citizen does not agree that you have done so. You might have explained to someone that although she does not agree with you about your policy on, say, same-sex marriage, let's say you're a libertarian, so you don't support same-sex marriage because you don't think that the government should be legislating on marriage in the first place. Let's say that's the belief you held. You might not be able to persuade your fellow citizen of that. She might not agree that you've given her good reasons, and yet you know, or at least you're persuaded, that given what she already believes about the role of the government in people's private lives, and given what she already believes about marriage being an outdated institution, you don't think that, but you know she does, and given what she believes about people being able to force their values onto other people by legislation, she should, on reflection, change her mind and support your policy. So you're thinking about what she already believes and what she should come to accept if she were reasonable based on those beliefs. All right? Now, she might not be persuaded. That doesn't matter. Remember that open justification means that you're not hamstrung by other people's failure or refusal to agree with you. As long as you've given her reasons for thinking that in light of what she already knows and in light of reasonable standards of evidence or argument that she already accepts, she should support your policy. So you've done your job. You can now support that policy as a conscientious citizen. That's how open justification works. As I've said a couple of times, I think that sometimes philosophers, some of them, not all of them, some of them are actually good philosophers, but sometimes philosophers have become so accustomed to far-out ideas and they've gotten so used to philosophy being the professional task of defending beliefs that you know really aren't true, as someone has once put it. Now, I didn't make that up. <laughs> But sometimes they end up investing great amounts of energy 
in explaining and defending that which is actually pretty obvious to a lot of normal people. Because to philosophers, it can seem pretty novel to think like a normal person. It's true that not everyone practices open justification as I've just described it, but I think most of us do. I think for most of us, it should strike a chord. I'm going to give you an example of how it might work in practice. Take our fellow citizen Alf again. Let's pretend that he's racist, really racist. He hates Asian people, just hates them. He's a nasty person. Now, if I want to advance a policy that prevents racist employment policies, then that could be a good thing. I don't want employers to be able to treat their employees badly because of their race, so I think this is a good idea. We shouldn't ask what Alf actually believes about Asians. We shouldn't say, look, Alf, here's this policy about, about racism. What do you think of it? He's, he's not going to like it. He's, he's racist. And now if we use the old model of justification, we would fail. We'd say, oh, okay, so my fellow citizen doesn't agree with me. Well, that's too bad. I like to be quiet. If we use open justification, here's what we do. We ask what he should believe about Asian people based on what he takes to be good reasons to think a certain way about people. It's very unlikely that he just hates the colour Sort of yellow, brown, whatever you want to call it. That, that's probably not what's going on here. Well, what is it then? It's highly unlikely that he hates the colour. Uh, so let's postulate that he thinks people who are intelligent, hardworking, virtuous and so forth deserve the same kind of respect that he wants for himself. He probably believes that. Probably. And so even if he does not actually respect Asians in the same way that he would like to be respected, he's openly justified in doing so. Okay, And because he is openly justified in doing so, we are justified, openly, in imposing this non-racist policy upon him. Because it might be that his distaste for Asians has such a hold on him that no amount of evidence, even evidence that meets what would ordinarily be his criteria of good evidence, would persuade him in practice. Maybe he would never listen but he should listen based on what he already knows. So this is exactly the reason that open justification idealizes away from Alf's real beliefs and towards what he should accept based on new information plus his own standard of evidence and reasons. That's the new model of justification that I think is a good one. Well, actually I think it has a fatal flaw, but it's not a bad one. It's better than the old one. And I think that that's really where the literature on political philosophy has moved. It's moved towards this new model of justification. So basically, when I talk about liberal justification, I'm now talking about the new model, which I call open justification. So, where does this leave religiously grounded policies? Where does it leave policies that, that I support because of my religious beliefs or which require a religious justification? Now that we've trudged through the initial question of what justification is in a liberal democratic context. I want you to notice that this is a logic fail. And by this, I, I, when I say it's a logic fail, I don't, I don't mean claim one or claim two is false, even though I think they are false. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this is a logically invalid claim. The second claim does not logically follow from the first. Number one, we should only advocate policies if they are openly justified or anything relevantly similar to being openly justified to our fellow citizen. 
to therefore we should not advocate any policy that can only be justified on religious grounds. Well, two just kind of pops out of nowhere. It's not a logical conclusion. Let's say that we're accepting premise one. That's open justification. Okay. The conclusion, number two, is what I'm calling prohibitionism, but two doesn't logically follow. In order to make it follow, we need to add a new premise, namely premise 1A. No policy that can be only justified on religious grounds is openly justified to our fellow citizen. Well, now it's a logical argument. In the, well, that should be two at the bottom. Now it's logical in the sense that Yes, the conclusion does follow from the premises. Think about it. We should only advocate policies if they're openly justified. No policy that can only be justified on religious grounds is openly justified. Three, therefore we should not advocate any policy that can only be justified on religious grounds. Okay, that's logical. Is it true? <laughs> it's a bit more important in my book right now. Is premise 1A true? I'm going to start by sidestepping a possibly lengthy explanation so that I can introduce another idea into the mix. It's not just policies that can be openly justified. Beliefs can also be openly justified if we have given reasons for accepting a belief that our fellow citizen should accept based on what he already knows, plus new information, plus the willingness to reflect on that new information in light of what he takes to account as good evidence and so forth. So beliefs can be openly justified. What if you can, just what if, you can, or at least have good reasons for thinking that you can, openly justify your religious beliefs, which in turn would provide your fellow citizen with reasons for adopting the policy that you're advancing, because that policy is based on those beliefs. It's important to remember that in order for a belief to be openly justified, it doesn't matter that other citizens don't grant that belief or they don't grant that it's justified in light of what they currently believe. That's the old version of justification. We've left that behind. In open justification, the religious belief needs to be such that other citizens should accept it in light of what they take to count as evidence. Setting aside for now the question of what they should take as evidence. Philosopher Thomas Nagel comments on justification, and he says, justification here does not mean persuasion. It is a normative concept. Arguments that justify may fail to persuade, if addressed to an unreasonable audience, and arguments that persuade may fail to justify. Now, of course, an unreasonable audience is not the only type that might not be persuaded by an argument that openly justifies your beliefs. An ignorant audience, for example, might be equally unpersuaded, but the point is crucial here. Because we're now dealing with a model of justification that exists to avoid the demand for perfect success in persuading people. You might not persuade people, it doesn't matter. What would be required in order for our religious beliefs, or any particular religious beliefs, mine or someone else's, to fail to be openly justified? Well, using the criteria that these secular liberal writers have given us, the religious beliefs in question would need to be such that in light of what our fellow citizen currently takes to count as evidence, their own viewpoint would commit them to rejecting those beliefs if they were exposed to all the relevant evidence 
and if their present beliefs about my religious beliefs were subject to extensive critique and review in light of that evidence, combined with their beliefs about what counts as evidence. Now, I've got no intention here of arguing that my religious beliefs are true, that God exists, that Christianity or anything like it is correct and so forth, even though that's what I think. What I intend to do is ask whether or not the kinds of arguments that religious apologists have offered are the kinds of things that could plausibly thought of as making religious beliefs openly justified. To do that, let's start with this question. I'm going to use Christians because we live in the Western world. Christianity is the predominant religion in the Western world. Do Christians think that their beliefs are openly justified? Do they think that their beliefs are true, but really just indefensible in any way that other people should accept? Or do they think that their beliefs, or even just some of their beliefs, the important ones, do they think that those beliefs are such that actually there are reasons to accept them that other people should accept based on what they already know when their beliefs are subject to careful revision in light of what you present them? Taking into account all the relevant information, taking into account their normal criteria of what counts as evidence. Now it's true that there are, to be fair, there are some Christians, not just silly Christians, intelligent Christians, who I think are just mistaken about some things, who do think that their beliefs are rationally indefensible to outsiders. They do think that. I don't think they should, but they do. Do a Google search on the word fideism or do a little reading in Karl Barth to see what I mean. There are some people who say that. But there are lots of Christians who don't. The majority of Christians who live in general liberal democracies, the majority of them, I'd wager, do not see their faith in this way. A British apologist from Oxford University, Richard Swinburne, now, he reflects on his own apologetic endeavours. Uh, he's written a, a large number of works in defence of Christian belief. And I think that his attitude is fairly typical of people who think that their religious claims, or at least some of them, are openly justified. Here he is there, Richard Swinburne. I've just quoted a small part there, but I'll read the whole quote here. He said, The basic idea of my book, The Existence of God, was that, with the one exception of the ontological argument, he doesn't like the ontological argument, the various traditional arguments for theism, from the existence of the world, the cosmological argument, from its continuity, sorry, from its conformity to scientific laws, which is a version of the teleological argument, and so on, are best construed not as deductive arguments, but as inductive arguments to the existence of God. A valid deductive argument is one in which the premises, the starting points, infallibly guarantee the truth of the conclusion. A correct inductive argument is one in which the premises confirm the conclusion. That is, they make it more probable than it would otherwise be. Science argues from various limited observable phenomena to their unobservable physical causes. And in doing so, it argues inductively. My claim was that theism, that is the existence of God, is the best justified of metaphysical theories. Now what do you think he means when he says justified? Do you think he means just justified to himself? Of course not. He published a book about it. What he is claiming, I mean, I'm sure he does think it's justified to himself, but that's not really the point. What he's claiming is that he has provided good reasons for other people to think that theism is more likely true than the alternative, namely atheism. It's no secret that he is not alone in thinking this way. In the presentation that he routinely offers in debates before 
campus audiences of believers and skeptics alike, including recently here in New Zealand, in Auckland and in Palmerston North, Christian philosopher William Lane Craig offers four arguments for the Christian faith, arguments that are common actually to a large number of Christian scholars. He uses the cosmological argument that God is the best explanation for the origin of the universe. He uses the fine-tuning argument that God is the best explanation of the level of fine-tuning in the universe that is required to support life. He uses the moral argument that God is the best explanation for the existence of moral facts. And he uses the argument from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, which of course is not just an argument for theism, it's an argument for Christianity. Now versions of some of these arguments have been used for many centuries by people like Aristotle, Aquinas, Immanuel Kant, John Locke, uh, in our own age by people like C. Stephen Evans, Gary Habermas, J.P. Moreland, and many others. I could cite examples of theistic arguments other than these too, like transcendental arguments used by people like Cornelius Van Til, uh, C.S. Lewis's argument from reason, Alvin Plantinga's argument from warrant, and his evolutionary argument against naturalism, and many more besides. But all of these arguments for religious beliefs have something, some things actually, not just one thing, in common. Those who present these arguments reasonably believe that any premises that they draw on, any claims that they're expecting people to grant, are accessible to at least many of the people that they are trying to persuade. They believe that the arguments are actually fairly simple. So there's no suggestion that the arguments are tailored only to an intellectual elite within society, or that one needs to be a highly qualified academic or an atypical person to understand and potentially grant their soundness. They expect these arguments to be granted in light of what other people already know. And so we have reasonable defenders of religious beliefs, beliefs that could possibly serve as motivators and which do serve as motivators for the endorsement of coercive policies. And those defenses are, in their view at least, in the view of those who defend them, in accord with ordinary rules of argument, dependent on claims, the truth of which is accessible to everyone, simple and therefore highly plausible. Every feature that could possibly be necessary for the demands of open justification is right here in these arguments. It doesn't matter that other people don't agree with this claim because the demand doesn't restrict you. The demand of open justification doesn't restrict you to what other people do believe because as political philosophers from the secular world of academia have told us, those beliefs can be subject to ignorance, prejudice, etc. Instead, the demand only subjects people to what they should believe. So as far as many of those who hold religious beliefs are concerned, their religious convictions, or at least some of the really important ones, are openly justified. So as far as liberal political philosophers are concerned, according to the rules that they have given us, The rules that they have given us, we can support coercive policies on the basis of at least some religious convictions. So, even if we grant the liberal demand of open justification, I think there's a problem with it, but for, for argument's sake, I'm prepared to say, yeah, let's run with that. Even if we do that, there should be no barrier to the religious citizen who does what one of my favorite political philosophers, Christopher Eberle, suggests. He suggests this principle that he calls the ideal of conscientious 
engagement. It's the way that you should engage politics and society in a conscientious and careful way. Already done those. Okay. He says, firstly, seek to arrive at a justification for L. L is just the policy that you are proposing or endorsing. Seek to arrive at a justification for L that is sound given one's own system of beliefs and values. So reflect on it, first of all, and make sure that your beliefs really do commit you to it. Secondly, refuse to endorse L if one does not have a good justification for it in one's own systems of values and beliefs. Three, seek to convey to others one's reasons for coercing them. Four, endeavor to arrive at a public justification for L, one that connects in the appropriate way to the beliefs and values of one's fellow citizen, which you can do in the methods just described. Say, well, look, you should believe this in light of the things that you already grant and so forth. Five, pay special attention to others' objections to and criticisms of one's reasoning, one's reasons for coercing them and aim to learn from them. So listen to people. You never know. You might discover that maybe it's not such a good idea after all. Maybe I've just made a mistake and this doesn't really follow from my beliefs and they've shown me this. Listen to that. And six, refuse to endorse any L, any policy that violates the integrity of one's fellow citizens. I think that's all right. As I said, point four, you know, endeavor to arrive at a public justification for L, that can easily be construed to include open justification. So the religious citizen, says Eberly, is still showing liberal respect, that's the term that they use, liberal respect for her fellow citizen and doing all of the above. And he presented this to Gerald Gauss, who proposed the theory of, who proposed the method of open justification and said, well, I guess we can do it then. Gerald Gauss wrote a book review of this, of this book that Christopher Eberly wrote, and he wasn't very favorable on this point. I want you to notice the way that he responds to this. It's not by appealing to open justification. This is what he says in the book review. In particular, he's commenting on point four. Endeavor to arrive at a public justification for L. So try to justify your policy to other people. He says, I confess that my intuitions about the requirements of respect are better expressed by Master Yoda. Do or do not. There is no try. It's all very well to try to make me see your point, but if your point is one that I have no good justification to embrace, then in the end I'm simply being subjected to your power, however well-intentioned and conscientious you may be. You might respond that way, but not if you believe in open justification. Look how he's raised the hurdle, or to use another appropriate sporting metaphor, he has shifted the goalpost. Remember that his idea was to get away from this. His idea is that open, in open, open justification, you don't actually have to persuade a person successfully that they should grant your belief or adopt your policy. But just imagine if you walked up to a, to a Klansman, to a KKK, and said, look, I've tried to give you good reasons to not support these racist laws and to accept my democratic laws, and they said, do or do not, there is no try. You wouldn't, you wouldn't find it acceptable from them. Why should we find it acceptable from, from Gerald Gauss? The very idea of open justification is that you don't have to persuade people because they can be influenced by all kinds of things, ignorance, bigotry, unreasonableness, and so forth. All you've got to do is try to get them to see your point, knowing that they should see it based on what they already know, as well as their criteria of evidence and so forth. When Gerald Gauss formulated the principle of open justification, he wasn't thinking about religious 
convictions and policies based on religious convictions. So he didn't realize that this was going to come and bite him. And when it did, he simply changed the rules. That's closed justification, which requires actual consensus and actual persuasion. Gauss has already rejected the theory of closed justification because the demand was unreasonable. So it looks like if a person really does meet his criteria of open justification, the new goal quickly changes and it quickly becomes successful persuasion, which is not at all the same thing. Well, the liberal might say, you have a point there, but it might be tempting for the liberal to offer a response by saying that, well, if any belief that we think of as religious really does turn out to be relevantly justified, like if you can intellectually defend it in a way that other people should accept, then it's really not religious in the sense that I was talking about anyway. <laughs> and that happens. In the sense that he had in mind, and so prohibitionism has nothing to say that would relegate these indefensible religious beliefs out of the public square. Maybe he just thinks that yeah, those silly religious beliefs should be kept out of the public square, but not the sensible ones that can be defended. But when the prohibitionist takes this tack, then the language of the discussion has been terribly misleading, to say the least. Because throughout the literature on political philosophy, the debate is about religion in the public square. Robert Audi is actually a Christian, as far as I know, who advocates prohibitionism. He shouldn't. It's a terrible mistake, but he does. And Robert Audi, in endorsing prohibitionism, explains it, I think, with great clarity, um, that what we need is a secular rationale. Not an intelligent or a, or a defensible rationale, but a secular rationale as opposed to religious. Now, if all these people meant by religious is a silly thing that no one can really defend, then the language of the debate has simply been loaded in an anti-religious way. Why not instead talk about not supporting policies that rest on silly and indefensible beliefs. I, I, that's a great idea. I, I would endorse that because I don't want people to propose policies that rest on silly and indefensible beliefs either. Religious believers would be quite happy to accept a belief like this, a, a principle like this, rather. And so I think that when the liberal says that we should only endorse policies or beliefs that are openly justified, and therefore we should not endorse any policy that rests on religious beliefs, what he effectively says is this. My fellow religious citizen, you must accept that whatever you might think about it, in fact, there just are no good public reasons to accept your arguments in favor of your ludicrous religious beliefs that anyone should accept given their beliefs about the world and what counts as evidence. And that is why we are ruling your beliefs out. They are not openly justified. Now, not only is that claim false, because there are at least some non-religious people who may well hold to criteria of what count as evidence that would lead to the acceptance of many arguments for religious beliefs. But in saying this, the liberal is simply putting himself at loggerheads with most of the religious community that he's addressing. He's putting himself at loggerheads over what is and is not openly justified. Remember, all that the liberal really has demanded of us, and all I think he has the right to demand of us, is that we abide by the principle of justification. He hasn't provided us with a list of what is and is not openly justified. The liberal who thinks that prohibitionism is an automatic consequence of liberalism, that is, 
He thinks that in any democratic society where we have to justify our policies, we'd have no policies based on religious grounds. Anyone who assumes that is being a bit sneaky. They are surreptitiously combining political liberalism with anti-religious skepticism. And they're saying, well, all I'm offering you is a liberal democracy, which is not true. I think I'm being a little bit restrained in the way that I depict my attitude towards those who display this attitude in, in the literature. I'm rather fond of a scholar named Edward Fesser. In fact, I, I requested him by name as one of my PhD examiners, and fortunately, I got him. He's a little bit less restrained in the way that he describes the situation, but I think he's quite fair when he says this. The problem, in the view of many liberals, is that religious considerations are matters of faith, where faith connotes in their minds a kind of groundless commitment, a will to believe that for which there is no objective evidence. Opinions of, on matters of public policy, they would say, can only be appropriately arrived at via methods of argument accessible by all members of the political community, not by reference to the idiosyncratic and subjective feelings of a minority. Well, if religious arguments were in general really like this, then I would agree with them. I would agree with the liberal that they ought to be kept out of the public square. But in fact, this liberal depiction of religion is a ludicrous caricature and manifests just the sort of ignorance and bigotry of which liberals frequently accuse others. I welcome your comments and questions.